you can see why I gave Lynn that reading, can't you? Thank you, Lynn. He did super, really. Uh, that was quite a mouthful. But it's important for us to read that those words are not put there for us to skip over. Otherwise, we just may as well rip the pages out of our book and throw them away. They're there because they are God's word. And I want to look at that with you this morning. So we're returning to our, our series. And in, in what a spirit-filled church looks like. What a spirit-filled church looks like. We've already concluded that a church that is not spirit-filled is not a church. A Christian who's not spirit-filled is not a Christian. And so we want to see, therefore, what a spirit-filled church looks like. That's where we're going together in this series. Let me tell you about an episode that happened in the UK not all that long ago, about a year. I was talking uh, with a gentleman who was telling me about uh, the church service on, on that preceding Sunday and how wonderful it was, how the Spirit was moving. And, as, and because the singing was so wonderful and so great, they just kept singing and decided not to have a Bible teaching that morning. And he was reveling in the wonder of that. I, wanna, I want us to consider what the gentleman said this morning. And I want to put it in line with what we're doing this morning. Is, is it proper or right? Is it a mark of the Spirit moving that we're so taken up with singing that we relegate or even push out the preaching of the Word entirely from a church service? What has the Bible got to say about churches that do that? Does the Bible say something? What is the place? Here's the question. What is the place of Bible teaching in churches that are spirit-filled? That's what we're looking at together. And I want, I want to draw you with that. Let me just tell you what we looked at last time. It was a couple of weeks ago. Our first heading was, our first heading was super, uh, that a spirit-filled church a spirit-filled church was one that is being supernaturally empowered to be in love with and taken up with Jesus. It's the first mark. We're saying it's the overarching mark of any spirit-filled church that is taken up with and that it's in love with Jesus. A church that doesn't speak about Jesus but is more interested in speaking about the Holy Spirit is not spirit-filled, we said. It's spirit-focused. And we're drawing a distinction. A church that speaks continually about the Holy Spirit and not Jesus is not spirit-filled but is spirit-focused because we said that the primary directive of the Spirit of Jesus is to do what? To point men and women to Jesus. So if we're talking about the Spirit, we're not Spirit-filled. Either that or the Spirit's having a bad day. Okay, and we see that. We see that brilliantly in Paul. Listen to Paul. Listen, and I want you to notice, when you read Paul, he's not constantly speaking about the Spirit. Read him, study him. This is Paul's heart. Listen to this. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing the Holy Spirit, for whose sake I've lost all things. In fact, I consider them rubbish that I may gain the Holy Spirit. It's what he says. 
It's not what it says. Jesus must be the focus of Christian worship. He is the be all. How's that saying go? End all. That's what happens when you get a Brit to be your minister. You can't get anything right. The be all and end all of faith, Jesus Christ. And you're never, you're never drawing the Spirit so closely to you or to a church gathering as when you're speaking about Jesus. It's what he loves because it's his mission to bring people to Jesus. That was last time. Okay, you can re-listen to that online if you can put up with looking at me again for another 40-odd minutes. But if you can't, just follow this one for now and then you're free to go. Okay, today we're looking at our second point. A spirit-filled church is one that is being supernaturally enabled to be passionate about Jesus' words. You know Jesus would get there again, didn't you? You knew he'd be, I'd sneak him in somewhere. Right? A spirit-filled church is one that is passionate about, loves, is excited about. Even the names, Lynn. Even the names. Jesus' word and the entirety of it is his word. A spirit-filled church is one that's supernaturally empowered to be passionate about Jesus' word. Let me show you. This is topical, so we'll be dotting around various verses. But I'm going to take certain passages and expound them in, 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 in our series. It's important, we argue in this church, not to be taking verses from anywhere we fancy in the Bible and to be making a 40-minute sermon out of them without considering their larger context. And that's paramount. And so we're going to do that together. We're in Matthew 5. Jesus is delivering his greatest recorded sermon. Okay? It's elaborated. It's his Sermon on the Mount. As we look at it, I want, to, I want you to see how he begins. And I want you to show something about Jesus' ministry and what he focuses himself on. Crowds were following him. We're told in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down and he began to do what? To teach. Pray? Does he say that? Teach. Yes, I was thinking I was having a senior moment then for a minute. No, yeah, yeah. He says and he says, to teach. He sits the crowds down and his objective is, and you know, have a guess. How long do you think this sermon lasted? We don't know, but we know something of Scripture, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a sound theological uh, estimation by theologians. Probably... Days! What did you say, Jim? Days. You can read it in 20 minutes, but you do realize it's an abridged version all the bible sermons are abridged versions he probably did this teaching series on the mountain over days and so he sits down and what's his purpose his purpose is to teach in fact when you read the gospels with you know without without an agenda the trouble is when we read the bible and you come with it with an agenda you see whatever you want to see 
If I think Lynn is an awful person, I don't know what it is about you, Lynn. You kick in the brunt of my sermons. It used to be, used to be uh, Pam, but she hides now behind Tracy, so it's going to be you, okay? Okay, if Lynn comes to the Bible and wants to believe certain things, she will find that in the Bible. When we come to the Bible neutrally, and scan the Gospels, what we notice about Jesus' ministry ahead of the cross, and even though it included the miraculous, the primary objective of Jesus was what? Someone tell me. Teach. I'm going to show you that. His primary, primary objective was to teach, and even the miracles... Look, Jesus did miracles on a stupendous rate because he was ushering in the kingdom or at least giving us a sample of what the kingdom will be like. But almost always, what were the purpose? Beyond the compassion for the person who's made better, what was the purpose that Jesus did miracles? Almost always. He gave glory to God. Something else relevant to this talk? Teach. There were almost always illustrations for his sermons. You read them. You read the miracles of Jesus, and there are almost always sermon illustrations. I'm going to give you four from each one from each gospel. John two. Jesus turns the water into wine at the at the wedding. What was that about? What was that about? It was an illustration of a sermon, and the sermon was. That Jesus is ushering in a better wine than the wine of the old covenant. I'll preach John 2 to you sometimes, you'll see the context then. That was his sermon that he's ushering in a better and new covenant that is superior to the first. That's why he was superior wine. It was a sermon illustration. Let me give you another one from another gospel. I'll give you, let's take Mark 2. Jesus heals a paralytic. Of his sins is the one when they dismantle the roof and lower this gentleman to them. What was that about? What was that healing about? Teaching. teaching. Thank you very much, Stephanie. You could come again. Okay. Teaching. Do you know what he was teaching? Do you know what his sermon was? He was teaching his deity by the sermon of forgiving this man's sin and demonstrating his equality with God. The illustration, in fact, you could argue Jesus set up the whole scene. That at that moment in his sermon, that man would pop in front of him so that by healing him, he could demonstrate his deity by forgiving his, his sin. The, the, the miracle served his sermon. Matthew 21, Jesus curses a fig tree, supernatural miracles. What happens when he curses a fig tree? It withers. What was that about? Why the heck did Jesus randomly go up to a tree and demonstrate the miraculous by making this thing wither spontaneously? Why? Yes, what was his purpose? What? Yes, so what was he doing? He wanted to teach about growing spiritual fruit and what happens if you don't grow spiritual fruit? What happens if, you, if, we, don't bear fruit, if we profess Jesus and don't bear fruit? What would Jesus do to us at the end of time? Discard us. And so in order to preach a sermon on bearing fruit, he does a miracle to illustrate what will happen to Christians who fail to bear fruit. It's a serious sermon. But the purpose being, the miracle was all about illustrating his sermon. John, uh, Luke, Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. 
What was that about? Yes, it was to meet human need. What was it really about? He was the bread of life. He's preaching a sermon. He was preaching a sermon that he's the bread of life. And he was preaching he's, he's greater than who? In that sermon he was preaching he's greater than who? The Jews loved him. And Jesus was saying by that miracle, which is an illustration, he's greater than who? Moses. Why? Why is he greater than Moses? Because what did Moses do? He supplied manna to people. And he said, one greater than Moses is here. Or Abraham. I might be getting my, my, my verses mixed up. But his point was that that feeding of the 5,000, which is actually 20,000 people, when you include women and children, was illustrating his sermon, which is he supersedes Moses. And if Moses gave you physical manner, Jesus gives us spiritual manner as demonstrated by this meal. So the point is simply this, friends, that all through Jesus' ministry, what we see over and 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 over again. I have a stutter. Is that teaching the Bible was the primary work of Jesus and even the miracles were serving those sermons. Here's what Mark Luke records for us, a doctor, about what Jesus says. This is the heart of his mission. I must preach the kingdom of the good news to the other towns also because, why? Because that's why I came. Jesus was a preacher quintessentially. That's why I came. His a priori purpose in ministry is preaching. It's why when you read the Gospels and, and when you look at Jesus' life, what you see, the things that's taken the most ink is the teaching of Jesus. It's why at the end of this huge sermon, perhaps lasting days, at the end of it, he concludes with his incredible words in Matthew 7 at the conclusion of his, of his sermon. And this is why Bible teaching was at the heart of Jesus' ministry above any other thing, even the miraculous. Because, verse 24, what does he say? Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like what? Wise man had built his house. Do you know Jesus never said that about healing? Never. He never said healing brings you into the kingdom. Never. He never said that the miraculous assists you in being right with God. It's his word. It's the teaching of his word that makes a man as wise as one who builds his house on a rock. The spirit-filled life, the spirit-filled church is anchored in Jesus' words because Jesus' words impart life to the hearer. That's why they're central. Hence why when he finishes his ministry, his last words, the last words of anyone are the most important they speak. His last words to his disciples when they are sent to make Christians all over the world, his final words are that they make Christians primarily through what means? Yeah, yes, discipling. 
But what's discipling done via or through? What's the chief teaching? You saw that on the screen, didn't you? Good man, good man. Look, how does the church make disciples? By teaching Jesus' word. A church that is not teaching Jesus' words is not making disciples. I don't care how many thousands you've got in there. If it's not teaching Jesus' words, there aren't disciples being made. It's as simple as that. Don't argue with me. I'm just the messenger boy. It's him who said it. A church that is not teaching Jesus' words, no matter how large it becomes, is not making disciples. Says Jesus. Says Jesus. Disciples are made by Jesus' word and his power, his spirit, is tied to the word. A spirit-filled church is one that has been supernaturally enabled to be passionate about Jesus. The reason I've added supernatural into my head in there is because we possess no power in and of ourselves to get excited about Jesus' word. And if you're aware of that, we do not possess endemically the power in ourselves to get infused or excited by Jesus' word. If you're here and if you're infused or excited by Jesus' word, it's not because of something that you had inherently within you. Your passion, your enthusiasm, your love for Jesus' word came as a consequence of what? Romans 7, 10 verse 17 came as a consequence of what? Before it comes up on the screen. I mean, it's on the screen. You're fired. No, no, we like you, mate. We'll keep you. What brings enthusiasm for Jesus and for his word? Because this is, this is a conundrum in itself. What brings enthusiasm for Jesus and his word? The word. Do you hear that? The word has encapsulated within itself a package to give you a hunger and a thirst for it. Look, if I can illustrate it simply like this. You say, look, I'm not thirsty, I'm not thirsty. I hand you this special drink. I am thirsty. Go, 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 go. It goes something like that, doesn't it? Glog. The word contains the potency to raise someone's passion for it. You have a neighbor who's not interested in the Bible. What do you do? Give them the Bible. Simple. You, you have someone who doesn't believe the Bible. What do you do? Read the Bible with them. You have someone who knows nothing about the Bible. You give them the Bible. The Bible contains within it the potency to raise and stimulate a passion and love for it. It's a self-feeding mechanism. You get bored of the Bible? Read it more. Listen to more sermons. And you're fine. A passion, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Jesus. So Jesus sets the tone for Christian living. It's to be anchored in the word. It's the paramount thing in Christian's life. Jesus presses it home over and over again. He presses it home on, on his last words 
and it filters through to the disciples. I want to show you the disciples. Let me move from Jesus to his disciples. His first disciples, I'm convinced, were a unique set of men never ever to be uh, repeated in the history of the world. These unique men who were taught by Jesus the words of the gospel. Let me ask you, what do you think they went on to do as their primary vocation? Teach Jesus' word. Yes, Stephanie. Teach Jesus' word. Let me show you. Acts 6, the beginning of Luke's, Luke's thing. But let, me, let me ask, before I move to 6, what did Peter do? What did Peter do when he had the spirit, when he was pretty filled? What was the first thing he did? Teach. It's not rocket science, is it? Teach. And so in Acts 6, let me take you to Acts 6. Now these disciples are becoming incumbent by all kinds of worries and con concerns. They're having to clean toilets and they're having to do this and they're having to do this. And Paul, well, the disciples say this. Listen to this. The 12 gathered the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to do what? To neglect teaching in order to wait on tables. You get that sorted so that we can give our attention to prayer and teaching and when they did that when they put proper structures in place what took the lion's share of the ministry of jesus in the apostles lives it was the spreading of the word can you see friends the centrality in the lives of the disciples of teaching the word the new testament church the new testament apostles were word focused not spirit-focused. They were spirit-filled, but word-focused. And in fact, I want to argue, if you read the whole book of Acts through, try it at the sitting, what you discover, the priority is never the miraculous. Everyone assumes Acts is all about the miraculous. It is not all about the miraculous. It's a misreading through dented lenses. If you objectively read the book of Acts, it's all about not the spread of the miraculous that accompanied it, that accompanied Acts. And there's episodes of it throughout, particularly at the beginning, petering out towards the end, but nevertheless present in Acts. The primary thing that spreads across Acts is not the miraculous, it's what? The Word. The Word. The word, I'm going to give you an example. You don't have to believe me. I might be telling you lies. So I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm going to take Paul's missionary journey. I'm going to take the first one. He, he did at least three big missionary journeys. I want to take you through the, Paul's first missionary journey. He's the, the advocate of the gospel, the greatest Christian ever to have lived, the greatest missionary ever to have lived, the most godly Christian you'll ever encounter. He went on a missionary journey. He started Antioch in Syria. He traveled through Cyprus, up into modern-day Turkey, into all these cities, and traveled all the way back to his starting point. He was a soul advocate of christianity okay so whatever he exported to these nations would be primary if we want to know what gospel work looks like what the new testament church is all about how the new testament church spread the gospel what was the key component of what they did we can learn everything we know from the book of acts and the missionary journey of paul and i want to show you what paul's missionary journey looked like so that we can model ourselves on New Testament principles in doing gospel work. This is what Paul did. I'm going to take you through the whole of Paul's first missionary journey. It took place in AD 46. 
He lasted two years, his journey. It starts in Acts 13 in Antioch of Syria. There's two Acts in uh, two Antiochs. This is Antioch of Syria. In verse 13, 5, having been sent by the church, they, they leave Antioch on a ship and they arrive in Salamis, which is Cyprus. And then what do they do when they get to Salamis? Teach. Jesus' word. The first thing they do, they open their wares, and the first tool they get out is the Bible. I like you. You know all the answers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The first tool they get out is the Bible. Okay, then they travel from the east side of the island right over to the other side, to the west. They arrive to the west, and what do they do in the west? Preach the word, verse 7. However, this time, this time, there's this guy, and, and he's, he's, he's getting in the way of the work. Okay, so Paul, boy, be wary of this. Paul blinds him. Paul, using the miraculous power he possessed as an apostle of Jesus, blinds the man, sends him into derision, because he was, he was affecting the preaching of the word, so that he would get out of the way effectively, so that, look, look, so that, verse 12, the proconsul could hear the word taught by Paul and Barnabas. So you could hear about the Lord's teaching. From there, they catch another ship. They land in modern-day Turkey, Poseidon, Antioch. And guess what Paul, in verse 15, does soon as he gets to Turkey? Verse 15, what's he doing? I know he's teaching because what does he, he stands up and says, listen to me. What's he doing? He's teaching. He preaches Jesus as a result of which, verse 49, in this huge sermon, what happens as a result of preaching about Jesus in verse 49? The teaching is spreading. The, the teaching of the Bible is what's forefront in the mission. Chapter 14, they travel from there to Iconium. When they get to Iconium, what happens there? What's the first thing they were doing? Verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. They taught. In fact, that so effectively, the great numbers of Jews and Gentiles believed they were preaching the Bible. In verse 7, chapter 14, what did they do beyond that when they came to the cities of Lyconian? What did they do in those cities? Verse 7. Yeah, they continue to preach the good news. It's getting boring, isn't it? This guy's boring. Who invites him on mission? All he ever does is preach Jesus. It's the only tool he plays with. Almost, almost. Okay, so there it is again. Boring, he's preaching Jesus. Then they get to Lystra. In Lystra, he heals a cripple, verse 9, stand up on your feet. The man jumps to his feet. So a miracle, at last. Okay, he does this miracle, but the miracle is now a distraction because what are the people now trying to do with Paul and Barnabas because of this miracle? Treat them like gods. So the miracles is actually affecting his work Negatively. Okay, and so they have to argue that they're not gods. In verse 15, he says, look, 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 we're bringing you good news. In verse 15, he gets back to what he's all about. He wants to preach Jesus. Then they move from there to Derby. Guess what he does when he gets to Derby? Verse 21, what do you think he does? 
teach, he began to preach the good news of that into that city. From there, he begins now his return leg of his mission. He revisits Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. And guess what he does when he revisits them? Teach! This guy is your ultimate one-trick pony. He's doing more Bible teaching. Look, he went through, he said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They said, that's exactly Jesus' word from the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he says about being persecuted? He's regurgitating Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to them. From there, they travel to Poseidia and to Perga. And there, guess what they do there? Preach the word. Look, I'm not missing anything. In fact, you think I'm missing all the juicy miracles out. I'm not. I took these words exactly as they came. I'm not missing anything, any juicy elements out. All Paul does on missionary work is preach with the occasional miracle thrown in when God sees fit. He preached the word in Perga. Then, then they returned to the church. They, were, they sent them to the church in Antioch, Syria. There they were sent. You know, they were sent on that mission directly by the intervention of the spirit with whom they were filled. Look at this, 13.2. Whilst the church was fasting and praying, the spirit in some way, we don't know how, spoke to the church and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What was that work that the spirit wanted them to do? It wasn't the miraculous. That was always an accompaniment to support teaching and we know it's teaching because in 1426 we read that they came back okay and they were committed to the grace and they had completed the work they had been given that and the only work we've seen paul do is preaching so paul returns having completed his work of preaching the bible simply put friends acts in the new testament church as much as miracles and supernatural gifts were evident from time to time, it's primarily about the church traveling the globe, teaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, teaching the Bible. It's almost boring. If it would be boring, if it wasn't so essential to Christianity. And thus... We can say categorically that the mark of a spirit-filled church is being supernaturally enabled to be passionate about Jesus' word. What is Living Word Church passionate about? What do we do at every missionary endeavor? What takes place in every meeting of this church? I want us to think about that. I want to take you, as I try and draw it to a close pretty soon, I want to take you quickly to Paul and to the passage I wanted to spend a bit more time on, which I want managed now. But let me take you to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 3, beginning with. I want you to show you why the Bible is so important to Christianity. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why is Paul so focused in his missionary work in preaching over the miraculous? Why? It's because it's the preaching that equips a pastor a Bible teacher 
to serve God's people, verse 17, so that he may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to say to you, friends, according to Paul, that the greatest tool a church has, a pastor has, a home group leader has, is the Bible and the teaching of it, because it's that that thoroughly equips us to serve God's people. It's why, look, these are Paul's last words, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy the book, rather, is the last book that Paul wrote. He's in prison, he's about to be executed. These are his final words. A person, we've already said a person's final words are the most significant of their life. Paul is about to leave Timothy. He's about to leave the disciples. These words are quintessentially the most important he'll ever speak. And what he does not send Timothy on is an errand to run healing missions. His last commission to Timothy is not a healing mission. What is it? It's to teach the word. It's to teach the word. What does he tell him? Next one, please. And he charges him. He makes, I need a a victim. He says, I'm telling you. Straight. This is your number one mantra. I'm dying. I'm leaving the church in your hands and I'm telling you, I'm making you promise me that you will not be sidelined and distracted by anything other than preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. Don't you ever get distracted by anything other than the word. Your target, your focus, your mission is preaching the word. He forces him to promise him that that will be the focus of his church. He wasn't pushing the gifts out. He wasn't pushing the miraculous out. He was just putting them in their place as secondary servant to the primary distinctive of a church, which is to Preach the word. Christian, if we cease to preach the word, we are no longer church. And Paul envisaged it. What does he say in verse 3? What did Paul envisage the minute he was executed? Yeah. They still have Bible talks in churches. He knew that churches would still have a speaker. Well, what did he envisage would become of preaching when he left? Verse 3, have a listen. What did he envisage? Because of all the other distractions taking center stage, what did he envisage would become a preaching? To cease to be preaching. He envisaged churches in his absence that would have a speaker who may speak for an hour, but it wouldn't be the word. It wouldn't be word. Here, Paul envisages, friends, Paul, I can't see, where's my glasses? Here, uh, uh, Paul envisages that in his absence, a zeal for Jesus' word giving way to talks, they still have talks, long ones even, that are more about being self-help techniques, motivation speeches, and get-rich programs than being teaching Jesus. Paul envisaged that 2,000 years ago. 
I don't think it would be far-fetched to say that there are churches like that in Adelaide today. Let me give you four marks and then I'm going to finish. The four marks of a spirit-filled church. Let me just try as quickly as I can. Here's what a spirit-filled church that is preaching Jesus looks like. Number one, a spirit-filled church is passionate about the Spirit-inspired Word. You see, I know that we've got the Spirit in this church because we love the Bible. And I know that Spirit-inspired because who inspired these words? He did through who? The Holy Spirit. A church that is spirit-filled but neglects the book that the Spirit inspired is not spirit-filled. Duh! Do you get the point? A church that says it's spirit-filled but neglects the word that the Spirit gave is not spirit-filled. It's lost its way. A spirit-filled church will always be passionate about the Bible. The second one is, second point B, a spirit-filled church is committed to publicly reading the Bible in services. Look what Paul tells Timothy again. I won't do this time because this is, this is in his last letter, so I don't have to demonstrate it with such vigor. Okay, you'll be pleased. But nevertheless, he does tell him in his previous letter, Timothy, until I come, what does, what does Timothy, Paul want Timothy to do? Until I come, do what? Devote yourself to what? Publicly? Read the Bible. Did you notice what Lynn did here for 10 minutes, 5 minutes? What did she do? And, and we'll do that every single week. It's a command of Jesus coming through Paul's mouth. That a church must have a public reading of the scriptures. If you go to a church service and there's no Bible reading in that church, alarm bells must go off in your mind. A church must, as a primary tenant, have someone who stands up and reads the Bible. Let me tell you this. Look, I'm waffling on about nonsense you're probably thinking, and you're probably right. You know, half the stuff I say, it's just me. It's nonsense. The only thing I say of, any, of absolute value, the only words I ever speak that are of absolute value are which words? The words that are directly from the pages of the Bible. When Lynn read those scriptures for us a few minutes ago, that was the most hallowed moment in this entire morning service. Why do I say that? That was the only moment when you heard in absolute purity, without any guy standing up here adding his two pennies worth or two cents worth, you heard in his, all his purity the words of Jesus. We must never neglect the public reading of Jesus' word. And we don't mean just two verses. We mean whole chunks of the Bible. And I hope none of us fell asleep when Lynn was reading. It was the holiest moment in this entire morning service. 
Second thing, third thing rather, a spirit-filled church sings Bible-focused church. I warned you I was going to have a go at these guys. So, hey guys, please take it easy. Take this on, on the chin for me, yeah? Okay. A spirit-filled church sings Bible-focused songs. What does Colossians 3 say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing is a fantastic way for communicating the Bible because it uses repetition and music and the combination is brilliant at helping us remember Scripture. It's brilliant for teaching Scripture. We sing not only to God. We, who else do we sing to? And I'm sure, I hope we, it's quite a woman here, isn't it? Even for me. Uh, we sing not only to one another. Who else do we sing to? We sing to Jesus. I completely said the wrong thing. We not only sing to God, we sing to one another we're declaring truths we're promoting jesus we're preaching jesus in our songs which means what must our songs is why i'm making a new database of songs it means what must our songs be rich with teaching of jesus that's why that's why i'm going through the whole database it's why we're selecting very clinically songs that are bible rich the ones that are not bible rich we're throwing away i don't care how Trendy the songs are. I don't care how many other churches sing it. We will not sing trendy songs just because they're trendy. If you like that, there's a church man. I'm sure, I don't know. I'm assuming the church is round here that do it. Okay? We will only sing Bible-rich songs because they are God's way of communicating Jesus to us and his word. But, and I'm going to have got the singers now, but let me say one thing about singing. Singing in the Bible, in the New Testament is nowhere near as central, as primary, as big as it is in most Adelaidean churches that I know. It's not. Singing is not as primary, as central, as big as most Adelaidean churches assume it is as it is in the Bible. I can walk into an average church, not just in Adelaide, in the UK, and I'm confronted with the music group. It's almost as though the whole church anchors and revolves around the musicians. That is not biblical. Do you know how much emphasis the New Testament gives, the whole of the Bible, on singing? Let me start in the Old Testament. We read all those psalms, and we think that singing and music is central to their faith, make joyful sounds unto the Lord, sing and, and beat the harp or whatever. I'm getting confused. Beat the drum. Do you know those, mostly those psalms that speak about praise you've been worshiping God in song were not practiced weekly? Because weekly when you met in the synagogue, you didn't take an orchestra or band with you. Those psalms that, that, that give the, the importance of singing were special festival occasions. Week by week in the synagogue, you did not carry around a band with you. Singing was not as prominent in the Old Testament as Christians sometimes believe. Let me take it to the New Testament. Look at Jesus' ministry. Let me ask you, who was in Jesus' worship band? I'm being serious. Who, who was in, where was Jesus' worship band? What did, if it's so important, Pam, if it's so central to church, why didn't Jesus take a worship band around with him? Because it's not central. 
In fact, what place did this singing have in Jesus' ministry? He was a Bible teacher. What place, how much airtime did singing ever get in Jesus' ministry? Hardly ever. In fact, on the one time or two times we see it, I want to show you how minimal it is. I want to show you. Look at, look at this. This is Jesus' ministry. He's now preaching his sermon. He's been teaching. The next one, please. He's been teaching his disciples uh, uh, in Matthew 26. What place did the music have in Jesus' ministry? When they had finished their, their teaching, what did they do right at the end? Sang a hymn. Do you see how low-key that is? They just sang a hymn. There was no worship band, there were no guitars. There was no hoo-ha. They just finished with one, just one song. Music does not figure in Jesus' ministry like it does in many churches. Let me take you to the New Testament. How many verses, if it's such a big and primary thing, how many verses of the New Testament do you think there are about singing? Have a guess. How many verses of all the words in all of the New Testament, we'll leave Revelation there because it's eschatological, it's future, there are about singing? Two. In the entire New Testament, there's only two verses about singing. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And yet we've made it, dare I say it, an idol. You've, you're practically worshipping the music group. It dominates the entire service. Everything hangs off it. What dominated Paul's worship service? What did he hang everything off? The teaching of the scriptures, not through song, but through preaching. And the last one then, a spirit-filled church preaches, teaches the Bible faithfully. I give you this charge, says Paul. I've got to finish. My time's run out. I'm, I got to my best part, and I can't do it very well. Let me just read these last couple of words for you, friends. Look, a Bible-centered church, a spirit-filled church, is passionate about preaching Jesus' word. I want to reiterate what I said earlier. Just because a guy stands at the front for 45 minutes, he doesn't mean he's taught Jesus' words. Seriously. I have heard sermons from well-known churches in Australia, which I won't mention for shaming them publicly, where I've listened to 45-minute sermons, and I never once heard a verse of the Bible! And this church is influencing the world. Just because a man stands at the front and gives a talk, it doesn't mean he's teaching the Bible. To teach the Bible means, here's what a sermon's got to incorporate. We're going to look at this on the theology course next week. Here's what a sermon must incorporate. A sermon must take a passage of the Bible. It must look at the literary context of it. It must look at the historical context of it. It must investigate the meaning and purpose in its original setting. It must then look at the, the biblical theology of that text. There it is. It must work out what the meaning and purpose is biblically, theologically in, the con in that context. It must then apply, look at what the application was for its original reader. Then, finally, it must look at what the application is for the present reader. And that's just a sample of what it goes into preparing a sermon. So when a guy stands up there and gives you a pep talk about what he's done that week, get him off the platform, for goodness sake. Unless you can test his sermon by a rigorous process like that, he has no right to be preaching Jesus. 
Just because we stand at the front and open our mouths, it doesn't mean you're getting a Bible teaching of Jesus. Watch who you let into this pulpit. You probably notice, I guard this pulpit with my life. I do. I do. I guard it with my life. Because I will answer to Jesus for every word that is spoken from there. And he's going to want to know, know what stories and anecdotes and humor that I shared with the congregation. But he's going to ask me, Montez, what did you teach them? What did you teach them? James says, be not many teachers. Why? Because you'll be judged more harshly. There was a time we've lost it in today's world when a preacher used to tremble going up the steps of the pulpit. Such was the awe and responsibility of declaring Jesus' word. May we gain something of that at Living Word Church. The mark of a spirit-filled church is a passionate love for Jesus' word. Amen. Thank you. We love your music group, really. <laughs> Bron's refusing to sing. Please sing, Bron. Thank you. We're going to sing our last song. Close off our time. It's a hymn. I hope you know it. It just sums up what we're saying. It's God at his center Jesus. Let's sing it. It's just two verses. We'll sing it twice. So there's four times. Malachi will repeat it. And I want you to enter into the, into the, the power of it and the, the Jesus focus of it, if you would. Thank you. God bless you.